All right, well, it's great to be back with you again tonight. Although I am a little sad, like Rich said, that we're closing the chapter on another semester. It's like, how, how did that happen? It's like we blinked and it's gone. And summer means that we have to send some of you away. We are uh, very sad to be losing some of our graduates. And so tonight's message is 10 Reasons Why God Wants You to Stay with Us at Timberlake. <laughs> and 10 reasons, uh, more after that, so actually 20 reasons, so 10 more reasons why you would be sinning if you left. <laughs> Just kidding. You can read, I, I hope, if you're graduating. <clears throat> that would be a severe oversight. <laughs> we don't want to be those parents uh, who raise their kids and then get depressed when they're fulfilling their intended purpose of being launched out uh, of the quiver, right? Remind me I said this in about 15 years. <laughs> Think about it, those of you who didn't, didn't catch that, I have, I have kids. We, we want to launch you, and we want to launch you out into a world that needs Christ, to launch you out to be instruments of grace in the lives of other people beyond Timberlake. We want to launch you out with eternal blessing from our God. And it's our great privilege to have this really short window in your lives, for those of you who are going to go from us. So hopefully have been used by the Lord to influence you toward greater usefulness to Christ and to His church. And that's our, that's our aim. That's our goal. And really, uh, Paul's ending to Ephesians, which is where we're going to be tonight, his ending of this letter is a fitting way to, for us to end our semester together uh, tonight. So if you would, go ahead and turn in Ephesians chapter, chapter 6. That's where we'll be spending our time together tonight. And as he brings this letter to a close, <clears throat> we can see what was most on the apostles' heart for the believers in Ephesus. We can see what was most pressing to him to these saints uh, that were so dear to him. It's what he wanted to, to most leave with them as they were finishing the hearing of this letter. Paul's final desire for these believers and what the Lord wants to leave with us tonight, and for those of you who are graduating or going home or staying here, what the Lord wants to leave us with tonight is for our hearts to be deeply encouraged. Deeply, deeply encouraged. Profoundly hope-filled as we look toward the future. He wants us to be increasingly full of joy and boldness as we live this life. That's what the Lord would want for us tonight, and that's what Paul wanted his Ephesians to end this letter with. And it's very important to Paul that we end on this note. Because if you remember back a few weeks ago, Paul rattled our cages as he reminded us of something that we often forget. That we're in a war. Remember that? We're in an all-out battle against our spiritual enemies, against Satan himself. A battle for souls. And we will not stand. We won't stand in that battle unless we are empowered by the Messiah himself. Unless we're using his weapons. Unless we're dependent in prayer. And he doesn't want us to be lulled to sleep. He doesn't want us to underestimate the intensity of the battle. And so, he gave us that thrilling sort of climax to the, to the end of this letter in chapter 6 with spiritual warfare. 
But with all that intensity, as he's coming back down now to, to, to really wrap up the letter, he doesn't want us to lose heart or to become discouraged. It's far from it. He wants the opposite to happen. Toward the tail end of, of the paragraph, Paul enlisted the Ephesians for prayer. You remember that? I think, I think Mark read it for us last week. But he says, I want you to pray. Verse 19, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Paul enlisted these Ephesians for prayer and he wanted them to intercede for him that the gospel would go forward, would go forth from him in boldness uh, for the advance of Christ. He was asking for prayer and as he was doing that, he mentioned, almost in passing, that he was an ambassador in chains. Did you catch that in, in verse 20? He's an ambassador in chains, reminding us, in case, you know, we'd forgotten because it's been a long time since we were back in chapter 3, uh, that Paul's writing this letter from prison. He's currently in prison. And I think he, he drew attention to the fact that he was still in, in prison because he wanted to highlight the fact that although he's imprisoned himself, the gospel is not. So that's the, as he's talking about spiritual warfare, he's imprisoned, he's in chains, but he has the message of the gospel, which is, remember, the sword of the Spirit. And prayer is, 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 being, you know, is, is happening through the church for him, and his intention was to highlight this fact that the gospel is not imprisoned. Through their prayers and his bold proclamation, then the word of God will advance like a sharp sword, defeating all of the enemies. But here's the, here's the thing that Paul knows. That even the mention of his chains, even just the mention of it, the mention of his imprisonment, it might cause these empathetic believers to become disheartened at the fact that Paul is suffering like he's suffering. And, in part, they put him there. Because they're Gentiles, and he came to them preaching the message of the gospel, which got him in prison. So in many ways, uh, they are the reason he is suffering like he is suffering, because of his, his love for them. And imagine that. Imagine if, if that was us in our context, that Pastor Farrell is taken to prison suddenly because he was sharing the word with us. Which may not be too far off for us in our future. Now, at that point, he would be suffering precisely because he loved us enough to share the word with us. Like, he didn't shirk back from his responsibilities as our shepherd. He's teaching the word, and then the authorities came and got him and imprisoned him. Our hearts would be really heavy, wouldn't they? And imagine that we had no cell phones, but we had no way to hear about how our pastor is doing. We just know he's in jail. We'd be concerned, wouldn't we? Well, so were these Ephesians. And Paul wanted to make sure that they were comforted about him, that they knew about him. He wanted to make sure that these believers weren't overly discouraged, that they had, that they had hope. And I just, I just think about this passage just more and more. I, I love that. The man in chains, the man suffering, wants to make sure his spiritual children have comfort, that they're encouraged at the end of his letter. And so he, he brings this letter to a close tonight with, with a few encouragements for them, and as we're going to see, for us as well, uh, in some of the most profound ways. So he, Paul is leaving us with some lasting encouragement at the end of his letter, 
And there are really three, three of them that I'm drawing out um, just in, in an outline. Three encouragements. Encouragement number one, we could, we could say it this way. Uh, Paul wants to encourage them uh, from a coming report, a report that's, that's coming to them very soon. Verse 21, Paul says, So that also you may know how I'm doing and, and what I'm doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Send him to you for this purpose, so you may know how we are and, and that he may encourage your hearts. So there's an encouragement coming for them, and it's coming through a person. Uh, Paul's co-worker here, Tychicus. And the more I, I meditated on this paragraph, the more incredible it became to me. Think about this with me. It shows us the kind of deep affection between Paul and his assistants, like Tychicus, and the Ephesian church, and just in general, more typically of the churches that Paul was involved with. Deep affection. These believers clearly loved Paul. They loved him. They were endeared to him. And they were endeared likely because they had experienced his self-sacrificing love for them. Right? He spared no expense. He, he came to them. He, he's preaching the gospel. He's suffering. He spent years in Ephesus discipling, teaching, working with their elders. Now he's in prison for their sake. Paul clearly loves this, this group of saints. And they love him. And Paul knows them well enough to know that they need an in-depth report of how he's actually doing. They're going to want details. Okay? They love him so much that they have to have a letter, like, to, to have no, a letter written to them with no details about his actual condition would be offensive to them. So, remember that. Next time your parents want details, right? Because they love you. Uh, that's the evidence of their love. They want to know how your semester went, you know, when you get home? Talk to them. It's free. All right. So, I love it because Paul assures them that he's sending Tychicus, who's going to tell them, notice the language, everything. He's going to tell you everything. Everything you need to know. Everything that you, that you want to know about me. He'll, he'll fill you in. I'm not going to write about it because I'm sending him to you. And he's going to be able to tell you way more than I can write. He'll leave no leaf unturned. He'll fill you guys in on the details of all that's happening to me in prison, who's taking care of me, how things are going, how I'm doing, what I need. He's going to take care of it. He'll tell you everything that, that, that's, that's happening, the comings and goings. And I love that. And notice that Paul also has no reservations about fully commending his spokesperson, Tychicus to these people. Now, they probably would have known him. He was an Asian, so this is a church in Asia, and they probably already knew him. But Paul's taking, them, taking this moment, you know, it's, it's, it's as though the style changes in Greek, so it's probably like Paul kind of, Tychicus is probably involved in helping Paul write this letter. It's probably terrible handwriting. And it's just a fact, okay? I'm not slamming an inspired apostle. He just did. So, at this point, the style changes. It becomes very redundant, kind of wooden. 
And a lot of people think it's because Paul probably took the pen. And I love this mental image. Again, just hypothetically here. So he's like taking the pen, and he's looking at Tychicus. And he starts pinning this about Tychicus. So that he is... uh, He's a faithful minister in the Lord. He's going to tell you everything. of Just this affection that Paul has for his own co-worker. And that's because there was a deep friendship there. A ministry friendship, a ministry camaraderie between them. This dearly loved brother has been with Paul literally through thick and thin, through beatings, through imprisonments. He stuck his neck out for Paul. And he's continuing to do that now that he's in prison. Because he's there with him. And it's this brother, Paul knows, that he can count on to deliver the letter, which is a big deal, because there's no USPS, even though they're increasingly less reliable, but there's no USPS or Amazon delivery or uh, UPS to deliver the mail. had to be delivered by human beings who are notoriously uh, not reliable. And so for Paul to have a spokesperson like this who can deliver the letter with no, um, with no issues, when forgeries were really common, everybody's out to get Paul. This is a huge, this is a huge deal. And Paul knows he can count on this guy and to, to deliver the letter and anything else they need, any other explanations they need. Tychicus could give a faithful report of how Paul was doing, yes, but I think there's more. Notice he says here that... He is going to encourage your hearts. He's going to be able to to dispense truth to you in a way that's going to encourage you. In other words, Tychicus deeply believed the truths of the letter that he was delivering, and he knew what it meant to live them out, and Paul was confident of this. So, Paul was confident that to send him was to send one who would help to encourage their hearts. So encouragement is coming, and it's coming in a person, and, and it's coming in Tychicus. So, that's Paul's first encouragement to, in this passage, to these believers specifically. But it begins to broaden out beyond that. There's more, there's more coming. That's not all he intends as an encouragement at the end of this letter. There's also an encouragement that's coming from a, a wide-reaching benediction. I'm going to explain that. There's encouragement that he intends for this church and people far beyond this church from this wide-reaching benediction. Read with me in uh, verse 23. He says, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. So there's there's encouragement that Paul intends here that's coming from a wide-ranging or wide-reaching, excuse me, wide-reaching benediction. Now, Paul likes to end his letters with this kind of stuff. If you read his letters, you're aware of them, you probably recognize some of the cadence here. This is pretty typical for Paul. He likes to end these letters with these kinds of what we call benedictions. Now, what's that? Well, a benediction, are those just sort of niceties at the end of a letter? Or uh, end of a worship service, you know, some some of the kind of the cadence the pastor always says at the end to kind of signal it's time to be done and go home. No, I think it's tempting for us to think of it that way. But they're much more than just sort of mere sentiments at the end of a letter that Paul tacks on here at the end. You can think of a benediction as a final prayer 
that calls upon God to bless His people in accordance with His covenant promises. It's a mouthful. Say it again. A benediction is, is like a final prayer that calls upon God to bless His people in accordance with His covenant promises. We could say it like this. A prayer that asks Almighty God to convey covenantal blessings upon His people. To convey covenantal blessings upon His people. And this isn't new in the Bible. Paul's continuing a tradition that you see throughout all the Bible. One uh, noted example in the Old Testament comes in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, where God commands Aaron and his successors in the priesthood to bless the people of Israel, saying, here's what he says in verse 23, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and, here's one one from our passage, and give you peace. Shalom. And notice what he says here at the end of the passage. So that's what the the priest, the Aaronic priest should say. That's That's the benediction. And now, Yahweh says, So they shall put My name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. So they shall put My name, they're conferring the character of God on the people, and as a result of this priest praying this prayer, God promises to bless them. To do all, of, all, all that's, that's asked for here in this, this sort of covenantal benediction. So here, in our text in Ephesians, Paul now, as a minister of the new covenant, an ambassador of the risen Jesus, the authorized apostle, one of them, this Paul is calling on God at the end of this letter to bless his new covenant people. And specifically, what we're going to see is that he's asking God to increase their experience of the new covenant blessing. He's asking God to increase their experience of the new covenant blessings. Everything promised to them in the new covenant. Everything spelled out in Ephesians chapter 1. It's his shorthand of asking for their experience to increase of all of the blessings that belong to them in Christ. And it it shows us kind of as we come to the end what Paul most values, what's on his mind, what's on his heart, what he desperately desires the church to experience in increasing measure. And what's really, really interesting about this particular prayer is who it's prayed for. Now, you might be thinking, what? Like, why is that so interesting? Pray for Christians. Yes. But hang with me. He's praying in the third person. Or he says there's a third person referent here. He doesn't say, in other words, peace be to you, which is what's normal, in, even in Paul's letters. It's normal. So that'd be second person. Peace be to you. It's what Paul normally does in his endings. But instead he says, peace be to the brothers. Third person. And then, again, 
in the next verse, grace be with all who love our Lord. That's kind of odd for Paul. It's as though here, at the end of the letter, Paul's focus turns not just to the Ephesians. That's, that's, that's very true. He cares about them, but it's not just them. Paul's focus turns, as a, an apostle of the New Covenant, his focus turns not only to the Ephesians, but to everyone who will eventually read this letter, including us. Everyone who will, who will experience the reconciling love of Christ, and as a result, love Him in return. That's the idea here. Everyone who loves our Lord Jesus, they've experienced this reconciling love, and now their hearts are yoked to Him. Everyone who, who does that, everyone who has that love in their hearts, this benediction is for them. And that's why I'm calling this prayer a wide-reaching benediction. As a foundational apostle, he intercedes for the universal church, for all the saints, praying for our own increased experience of the covenantal blessings that Christ has won for us. That's incredible. And very interesting. Just kind of different. And it fits perfectly with the theme throughout the entire letter. Where this, this epistle in, in Ephesians is essentially an expose on the glory of God displayed in the church. And Paul is, is very pivotal as an apostle. He's foundational as an apostle in this, in this role. So, let's take a quick look at what he prays for. Alright, he says, Peace be to the brothers, and love with faith. Okay, peace, love, faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord. So he prays for a package of blessings. Literally, a package of them. Peace, number one. Love, number two. He says, with faith, number three, you could say. Grace, number four, at the end. And they're, they're a package, and the picture of this package, which includes faith, interesting, comes from God and Christ together. So again, there's a lot of shorthand happening in this prayer. But it's from God, originating from Him to you. And it's one through the, the, the work of the Lord Jesus on your behalf. So it's from the Father and Son together coming to you. And God's using Paul as the foundational apostle to confer these blessings onto, onto the church. So what's he, what's he praying for exactly? Well, what's so beautiful about this final prayer is that Paul's gathering up all the key themes of what he's already talked about throughout the entire letter of Ephesians. He prays that we would experience now, first, an increase of God's peace. Now, I'm saying increase. Why am I saying that? Well, because it's clear that, he's, that the prayer is intended for believers. Meaning these are people that are, are already saved. They're people that have already experienced God's grace and salvation. So when he prays for peace, they've already experienced God's peace. So when he prays for peace, he's not praying for a new experience. He's praying for a deepened experience. An increase of this peace. Because he's already told us back in chapter 2 that God has accomplished peace through the cross of Christ. We are no longer children of wrath, chapter 2, of God's wrath. No longer are we that. But instead, we have been reconciled to God through the death of Christ. God was our enemy at one point. 
We had his target on our back, not Satan's. And all of that, the war has been silenced. And now there's objective peace accomplished, eternal peace accomplished in and through his son for you. And now, as his people, people of peace, Paul's praying that God himself would cause us to experience this in fuller measure. We would experience the peace of God that He's accomplished for us, that we would live in this peace, we would live in the shalom that He's worked for us by the Messiah, that we wouldn't revert back to our own works to try to bring us peace with God. Because that is not, that's not the answer. It's, it's receiving, as we're talking about in a second, it's receiving afresh the peace that God has accomplished for us. So that's the first thing he's talked about, is peace. Next thing he talks about is, is love. The next thing he prays for is love. This, this, the same thing is true of his prayer for an increased experience of God's love. And implied in this request is that God would grant us more understanding of his love. Paul's prayed for this already one other time in, in Ephesians 3. But again, shorthand. There's a, there, it, it's it, it implied that, that we, should, we should see how unchanging and eternal His love is. How it's fixed on us in Christ. How we've never earned it. Not one, not one iota of it at any point in our lives have we earned the love of God. But that it was freely given to us. How it was proven. The love of God was proven to us in the cross. And how nothing in the universe... No evil power, no amount of suffering, no amount of sin, not even death can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's what Paul's praying for. Paul wants us, if you've trusted in Jesus, to know how deeply you are loved by God and the Lord Jesus tonight. That's what this prayer is all about. And according to Ephesians 1, He has always loved you. Even predestined you in love. Motivated by this kind of radical love. So here, Paul the Apostle prays for you and I that this love, the love of God, would be upon us. That this love would come to characterize us in increasing measure as we learn to bend that out in all of our relationships. Next, he's praying for faith. He prays that both peace and love would be, he says, with faith. You see that? With faith. So what exactly does he mean by that? With faith. Why doesn't he just pray peace and love and faith? Well, I think it's his shorthand way, again, of saying, or of reminding us of how God's gifts of love and peace are appropriated in our lives. Make sense? They're appropriated through faith. We receive God's gift of love by faith. We receive the news of peace through faith. So, God says, I've made peace through Christ, and I love you, child. And we believe Him. We don't doubt 
Him. Even though it sounds too good to be true, too wonderfully good, we receive it anyway. That's what faith is. Even when circumstances seem to deny it, we receive it. Now why? Well, because God, answering prayers like these, is strengthening our faith. That's what Paul's praying for. I often wonder sometimes, I'm going through a trial, I'm, I'm out of one, uh, gone through it, and I'm still trusting God. It's not always pretty, but He's always faithful. I often wonder how many times God, in answer to prayer, actually strengthened my faith to, to stay in it, right? Now in this case, that I'm seeing answered Paul's prayer to strengthen my faith, to stay, stay in the fight. Paul knows that, that God will answer these prayers. He promises to, which is why he prays. And this is the hope we have in, in this prayer. And finally, he, he prays for grace. A little behind on my outline here. He asks for an increasing experience of God's grace for us. So what is grace? You can think of grace as the capstone blessing here. And that's, or, or the banner blessing, kind of it, it's sort of Paul's summary of everything else. I think that's why he breaks it out here, out here grammatically. And it's separated from the other blessings of this package because it's sort of the climactic final thing Paul wants to, to leave them with, grace. And, and grace is the wealth of all that God has freely given us in Christ in spite of all that we deserve. There's lots of ways that you could talk about grace because it's, it's such a broad, giant concept for Paul, but... I think that that gets at at the the essence of it. It's the wealth of all that God has freely given us in Christ, and that's in spite of all that we deserve. Grace highlights the grandness of the gift and the freeness of it. It's grand and free. And we see its brilliance most clearly when we see how we deserve None of it at all. Zero. So, to pray for an increased experience of God's grace is to pray for a growing realization of how He treats us. On the one hand, how grand and how lavish His forgiveness is on the one hand, how free it is on the one hand, and at the same time, He is also praying for a growing awareness of our own unworthiness. A growing awareness of the evil of sin. A growing disdain for our prior life in darkness. A growing hatred of our propensity to boast in ourselves. Which gives us some insight of why he spelled out our depravity in like four verses in chapter 2. And he goes back to it again in chapter 4. Because to know an increasing measure of God's grace is to know an increasing measure of your depravity. That you have nothing good in your heart apart from the Lord Jesus. And that's what Paul's praying for when he asks that God's grace be with you right here in this benediction. Now, this is incredibly encouraging stuff 
And I think this prayer is particularly encouraging because no matter where you're at in Christ, no matter if you're caught in sin, you're caught in a guilt cycle, you're caught in debilitating, life-dominating sin, or you're growing in Christ, you're, you're vibrant today, no matter where you are on the spectrum, there's always hope for more. Like always. There's always hope. There's always held out to us this, this hope of experiencing more of God's peace, more of God's love with faith, of realizing and believing more of His gracious character toward us. And as a result, coming to have these things characterize our lives all the more. There's always hope. And that was, that was Paul's hope. It's what fueled him. And it's, he want, it's what he wanted to leave these Ephesians with as they finished hearing this letter read aloud. As the final words were landing on their ears, he wanted to build hope. And he wants that for us tonight. Now there's one more really subtle encouragement. We'll be brief here. It's a shorter message uh, tonight. But there's one more uh, subtle encouragement that I want to draw out for you. And I'm, I'm calling it, I didn't know how else to say this, but an encouragement from a clever ending. All right? Probably a better way I could have said that. I don't really like calling an inspired apostle clever as though he's like trying to be cute. But I do think it's an interesting way he ends this letter. And it's very clever. Look in verse 24, and I don't know if you'll catch this or not, but grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Love incorruptible. Now the way he ends here is masterful. Literally, it's his final word of the letter. And it's slightly confusing when you're trying to deal with what Paul means and what he's actually saying here in this last phrase. It has to do with this concept of being incorruptible. Something's incorruptible here. Now, most translations interpret it for us. And they think it has to do with how we love Christ. Okay? So just take a minute. It's going to get a little technical, but look down at your translation. And does does it modify, grammar word, does it modify love? Do like this if it does or like this if it doesn't. Some, some sort of incorruptible word with love? You're looking at me like deer in headlights. It does? Okay. Good. Well, I'm glad. Glad to know that you're alive. <clears throat> so, that's how the ESV takes it. With, it calls love incorruptible. So let me, let me translate it more woodenly for you. It can be translated like this. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in... Immortality. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in, like I in, like in, in immortality, or in incorruptibility. Most translations, like I said, take that phrase in immortality as modifying love. They take it to mean that we love him without corruption or decay, like our our love is untainted, in other words. Now, it is tough because that's not how this word is used uh, in any other place in Paul's letters. It would be strange for Paul to talk like this about love uh, and use this word to say it. 
So the only time Paul uses this term, incorruptibility or, or uh, incorruptible, is to talk about eternal life. Uh, life in the resurrected state in the coming kingdom. It's like, that's all. He, he used so Romans 2, 7, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, 42, uh, verse 50, verse 53, 2 Timothy 1, 10. Those are the only times he uses this word, and those are the context. Resurrection life. But here, he doesn't give us much explanation for what he means. He just sort of tacks it on at the end of the sentence. It's as almost though he, he just, just kind of tags it on here. And, it, and just thought experiment, if you left it off, it actually makes more sense. Okay? It would read just fine. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Clear? Right? <laughs> Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ in immortality. It's kind of like, oh, well, like what? What do, what do you mean? So why does he tag it on here with that little detail? Well, I think what we're doing is exactly what he intended us to do, is to go, huh? I think he catches our attention for sure. Or it should catch our attention. And it's intentional by Paul. I think it more naturally follows that, that this phrase is describing, again in shorthand, something about Jesus, not love. Jesus is what it follows. The Lord Jesus Christ in immortality. We've already seen this has been like shorthand expose, shorthand 101 in this, in this prayer. I think he's just continuing to do that. So he's describing, I think, something about Jesus. So what is he describing about Jesus? That Jesus now lives in immortality. He is resurrected. He's already said that a lot in the letter. And he now lives eternally in an incorruptible state. I think Paul's saying that through Jesus, he is ushering in the new incorruptible creation. It's yet another way of Paul returning to this new creation theme we've seen through this whole letter. It's the very theme of Ephesians, I think. And it's, and it's, it's coming here at the end of the letter. And it's literally his final word of the letter. And it's our word of encouragement. How so? Well, it's what motivates and encourages an, an imprisoned and suffering apostle. And it's what he wants to leave us with as we end this letter. The hope or the encouragement of the coming new creation that's one for us by the Messiah. So in a way, we could add this as our third, our, our fifth piece of the package here, incorruptibility. It's the hope of this coming new creation that's one for us by Him, by the Messiah. And so that's His prayer. That's the way He ends this letter. That's the encouragement He wants ringing out here. And we're going to end our time tonight. The reason it's a bit shorter is because I wanted to end our time, I couldn't think of a better way to end it than to pray this benediction um, over our graduates. People who are, who've kind of come through, whether that's undergrad or grad school, whatever it is. So um, if you don't mind, would all the graduates just come up here and sit right here on the front row? Move my keys. And I want to, um, on behalf of our leadership, behalf of our church, just pray over, over you guys. So don't be bashful. 
Come on up. I'll slide over and angle a bit so I don't spray you. Nobody sits on the front because, except you guys, you're the brave ones over there. Hey, guys. Hey, man, come on over. You can sit right there if you want so you don't have to go all the way over there. Man, brutal. Make the guy with crutches go all the way to the side. Man, all right. Well, I'm angling toward you because now I'm talking to you guys. All right? I know you're going you're gonna to get a lot of this in the next few days, but it's okay. I'm just going to weigh in, too. Uh, when I think back to my graduation days, I remember what it felt like that I had the vortex of emotions swirling through me. I'm not you, so um, you guys are much more mature than I was in that day. Uh, there was overwhelming relief that I had made it. Um, profound humility, thankfulness of all that God had done in my life. Excitement that deadlines were over, or so I thought. They're not, <laughs> ever. But they are in this season. There, but there were, at the same time, like of all those positive things, I think there, there was also this panic. Um, what if life doesn't turn out how I envisioned it? What if I'm not able to, to do the things I've studied for? What if I don't get um, the job that I had intended? Will the next steps I've actually planned work out? Um, there were even some things I had sort of envisioned for my life that weren't going to be a reality. And uh, that, those were just difficult. So I don't know what you're feeling, but I, I definitely have prayed for you already, and I kind of I remember this phase. Um, but I do know what you need. And it's, it's what Paul prays right here in this prayer. It's the very things he prays. So what I want us to do is just bow together, and I, I want to pray not just this prayer, but a prayer for you guys and um, in echo of what Paul's praying here. So let's bow. Father, we thank you uh, just for these precious saints. These folks that you chose from before the foundation of the world to resurrect them, redeem them in a precise moment in history. We thank you for the good works that you've planned for them for however many days that you've ordained them to live on this side of the resurrection. We thank you for leading them to us here at Timberlake, and, and we thank you for how you've used them in our lives and in our church. We pray that you would cause the fruit that they've produced to remain in our body. We thank you for giving them the minds, the desires, the energy, and the sustaining grace to study over these last few years. Thank you for enabling them to persevere, to complete what they started. And thank you for everyone who's invested time and energy into their labors, from faithful parents to friends and professors, church members. And we are just profoundly grateful, Lord. We pray tonight, um, just along with the Apostle Paul, that you would uh, grow them, that they would grow in the knowledge of your peace. The peace that you've accomplished in Christ for them. Help them rest in it. Fill their hearts with just the sweet tranquility that comes from knowing that you are in control of all things. And that you cause all things to work for their good. The good for those who, who love you. As they make plans, as they think about the future, may they walk forward in humble dependence on you with confidence 
and taking risks for your name's sake, all knowing that you're going to guide their steps as they know that they can't thwart your good and sovereign plans for their lives. We pray that you would increase their experience of your love, that they would increase in the, the knowledge of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That in their dark moments where they feel forsaken or forgotten, or that Satan appears to have the upper hand in their lives, that you cause their faith to be strengthened to believe your word. Cause them not to lean on their own understanding, but to know you in all their ways. Not to be wise in their own eyes, trusting what they can humanly see, but trusting exclusively on your word. And we pray that you deepen their experience of your grace. We know that we, as we pray that, we're also praying that you humble them, that you teach them the blackness of their own hearts, not to discourage them, but to teach them to flee from themselves, to distrust themselves, and to trust in you alone, in you exclusively. To teach them to see the glory of your great grace toward them, and to see the surpassing value of Christ. And for those who are sending out after graduation, Lord, may they take what they've learned from us, and may you cause them to be faithful to the end, Faithful husbands and wives, faithful employees, faithful singles, faithful in in the church. Produce eternal fruit through them, Lord. And fill them with all your joy as you do it. And we ask it all in Christ's precious name. Amen.